We here at Pitchfork Economics listen to a lot of podcasts, and one we think you'll like is Our Body Politic, a political podcast that's by and for women of color. The show offers a new view of the news, making politics personal with host Farai Chidea, a veteran black woman journalist who has reported all over the U.S., from Standing Rock to Air Force One, and covered every presidential election since 1996. Each week, Farai gets real with women you need to hear from, including senators, representatives, journalists, authors, and more. If you want your political news to lift you up and be useful in your daily life, then listen to Our Body Politic. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. We're getting a clearer idea of what the post-pandemic American economy might look like. And, you know, based on history, there will be some good things and there may be some bad things too. These pandemics and wars and that sort of thing force people to reevaluate. Their, their lives in lots of ways and make them realize that actually life is quite short and <laughs> precious and maybe gives them a sense of actually I'm going to, you know, try and do something really amazing. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, guess what I did the other day? Um, something terrible and depressing? I don't know. What? Counter to character. No, I went to a bar. I mm. had a beer <laughs> in a public place, uh, and it was glorious. You know what that means, at least for me? Uh you can get drunk again. The pandemic <laughs> yeah, is over. I don't I, know. The pandemic is over. That's okay. what it is. Okay. I'm too, I'm too old and inhibited to get drunk, but I certainly am able to go out in public. I've gone, I've gone to stores. I wear my mask indoors, uh, but outdoors, there's no more mask wearing. And it feels like for me, things are getting back to normal. Uh, and you can see that happening across the economy. Yeah, for sure. Um, at least in the United States, the pandemic is coming to a close. And, you know, at the very beginning of this pandemic, we had a, several episodes about uh, what this was going to mean for the economy. Uh, now that it's coming to a close, we've seen how the years played out. We're getting a clearer idea of what was uh, temporary, what changes might be permanent, and what the future, the post-pandemic American economy might look like. That's right. And it will be hard to know for certain in the near term, but uh, today we get to talk to somebody who's thought about it deeply and more importantly, done a bunch of research on what happened the last time. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist. He's also the author of The Classical School, a book about the history of economic thought. It turns out that there have been other pandemics, smallpox, uh, <laughs> Spanish flu, black death, cholera, you know. Nature does its business over the, over the years, and what happens afterwards is a is a matter of record. And uh, it'll be really interesting to talk to Callum about it. He's written a really interesting article about what he thinks happened the last time. And you know, uh, at least based on history, there will be some good things, and there may be some bad things too. I mean, 
we're hearing projections of 6% GDP growth right. this year, uh, which would be uh, four points higher than the pre-pandemic uh, trend. That would be amazing. Uh, we saw something like this in the roaring 20s after the Spanish flu in the First World War. Unfortunately, we've also seen uh, civil wars and revolutions right. uh, yeah. after past pandemics. That's right. Yeah. The, and the, you know, the way in which a pandemic kind of upends the norms and traditions and sort of the patterns of society, uh, again, you know, where everything kind of falls out afterwards, uh, you know, a bunch of things can be better. Certainly in history, one of the things that's happened is that labor, for a variety of reasons, labor has gotten stronger. And in many cases, innovation has increased, but also, you know, civil unrest and revolutions and all the more yucky things that you would prefer to avoid. And so with that, let's talk to Callum. My name is Callum Williams. I'm a uh a writer about economics for The Economist, and I cover a bunch of different things uh, at the moment, focusing um, a lot, as you'd imagine, on uh, what the world looks like as it uh, emerges slowly, but hopefully surely from lockdowns into a post-lockdown future. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, you wrote this really interesting article where you look back at periods of massive non-financial disruption, smallpox, Spanish flu, Black Death, etc. So, what does the record suggest? Yeah, so a bunch of things. So, yeah, it, thanks for distinguishing non-financial disruption because this is not about banking crises right. and financial crises and that kind of thing. This is about basically about pandemics and uh, wars, but mainly pandemics. Actually, you know, as as you'd expect, they they have a bunch of a bunch of different impacts. But the best way to think about it is is that they come into kind of three three categories, I guess. One is to do with sort of how people spend their money. And one is to do with how businesses change how they're working. And then the third one is to do with uh, the political ramifications, which tend to echo down the generations for, for many years to come after the pandemic has, has ended. And, and the idea about this article was to kind of give readers a sense of, you know, what to expect um, over the next few years. What's, you know, based on what you've learned, what are your predictions about what will come? Or what might come? <laughs> yeah. What are the possible futures that could come? The good, yeah. good, bad, ugly. Okay, so I guess, I mean, so the good, maybe the good one is, is, is what people do with their money after, after the pandemic's ended. So as everyone knows, what's happened, say, in the US over the past year is that people have been trapped at home, um, haven't been able to go out and spend. A lot of people have also received checks from the government and other sorts of government assistance and not everyone has, has been able to build up their savings absolutely not but on average the average american household has built up their savings by quite a lot actually if you look at um basically look at bank balances they've, they've gone up quite significantly but this is not the first time that something like this has happened so if you go back and look for instance what happened during world war one and world war two in the u.s particularly World War II, when there was a lot of kind of rationing in place and people were actually forbidden from buying certain things. So for instance, the, uh, the car industry basically completely shut down in World War II. And I think if I remember correctly, in 1943 or maybe 1942, the entire US car industry produced about 40 cars. So there just simply weren't things to buy. And so what you, what you then got was that the, the war ended, the pandemic ended, and people had more money in their bank accounts than they did at the, at the start of the pandemic. And so 
they have this tremendous sense of you know positivity about the world things are going to get better and so the question is what do people do with their money uh the evidence suggests that you know there, there does tend to be a bit of a spending boom and which is great I mean, it's great news for, for 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 the global economic recovery and it's great news for putting people back into work obviously who are, who are still out and there are many millions of people who are still out of work i think the thing that i was a bit sort of surprised to discover though from looking at the historical evidence is that people at the time didn't really feel as though they were having a as as wonderful a time as you might think so for instance if you look at the the spanish flu in the us in the late uh, 1910s uh spanish flu ends people are kind of aware that it's ended but uh, the historical evidence suggests that people still feel a bit sort of scared of infection. They feel quite tired. Uh, they feel a bit worn out by all of the death and destruction that's been surrounding them for the past uh, little while. So there's an amazing PhD thesis which looks at America during the Spanish flu and, and reports on, on Times Square in, in 1920, which was the first New Year's Eve when, when you know, the threat of infection had kind of decisively passed. And it didn't actually feel like much of a, a party town at all. People basically weren't out doing anything. They were just at home because they felt a little bit sort of People scared. People were still so, scared. Well, still, yeah, yeah, exactly. Still scared, yeah. So, and even after the Black Death, which was the, you know, the biggest pandemic of all, there's a lot of, if you, know, if you read blogs about the Black Death, often there's this assumption that the end of the Black Death came and people just went completely nuts and you know, had these enormous medieval parties and stuff. And maybe there was a bit of that, but unfortunately it wasn't quite as kind of raucous as we might have hoped. So that's the well, first thing. And I mean, yeah. of course, in the moment, you don't know it's over. <laughs> Because <laughs> you've exactly. been told it's been over for a long time, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, so you can totally only know right. it was over looking back twenty years, not not That's in exactly that right. moment at all, right? But you, so so you find that people do spend more uh, after the disruption, but they don't spend everything they saved all at once. Exactly. So, for instance, in the in in after World War Two, the the evidence suggests that America or Americans spent about 20% of the, of the savings they'd accumulated during World War II. Now, because they'd accumulated so much, that was a huge pot of money that was being injected into the US economy. So it was really good for, for, for the economy, right? There's no doubt about it. But there was, they absolutely weren't just going out and blowing it all on one massive you know, night out or big holiday or anything. Yeah. So, you know, the other, the other thing that you, you know, that the research tends to reveal is that on the supply side of the economy, where you know what business dynamics may change too, and in particular, it seems like people are willing to do things in new ways and take risks that they might have not once taken. Yeah, it is. I think that is right. So, I mean, so something that's been happening in the, in the U.S. in particular in the past year, although not just in the U.S., is that the the uh, the number of new businesses being created, entrepreneurship and innovation of new businesses, startups, and all that stuff has been booming. More and more people are saying, I'm going to start my own business and employ people. Um, I said, I'm going to be the owner of the business. The weird thing about America is actually for a long time, the, the rate of entrepreneurship among the population in the US was actually going down. We hear all this stuff about startups and about Silicon Valley, blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's, none of that's true. Like the rate of innovation has been going down for about 40 years. But then COVID came, it's gone right back up again. And if again, if you look back at 
you know the, the historical record, what you what you find is that this is actually a pattern you see again and again. So again, to talk about the Spanish flu example in the US uh, in 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 1918 to 1920, it's quite amazing the acceleration you get after 1920 of new businesses being created. Um, uh, and I think this is basically because people sort of you know these pandemics and wars and that sort of thing force people to reevaluate. Their, their lives in lots of ways and make them realize that actually life is you know quite short and, and precious and maybe gives them a sense of actually i'm gonna i'm gonna grab this by the, the scruff of the neck and i'm gonna you know try and do something really amazing or and this is definitely true at the moment um the pandemic creates lots of new needs and demands you know so at the moment we've got a lot more demand for takeout like really cool takeout stuff because people are still nervous about dining out so that has led to lots more startups in that space to sort of meet that demand so it's partly that and and i suppose because of the increased savings there's a lot of uh entrepreneurs who now have access to a little bit of capital they didn't have before the pandemic totally right yeah that's really important as well i think yeah yeah and you know um in my circles talking to people who run businesses you know, the number one question that people are asking is what the impact will be in the future, given the way in which the pandemic accelerated and made possible really remote work. And yeah. the, the knock-on effects of a world in which people to a much, less, you know, sort of lower degree need to get up in the morning, drive to work, spend eight hours or 10 hours in an office or in a cubicle and then drive home to get all their yeah. stuff done. Yeah. You know, like the implications of that changing are really broad reaching and will create a huge amount of opportunities for different kinds of economic activity. You know, some yeah, things so will get less valuable and other things will get way more valuable and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a huge change for sure. Are you familiar with uh, Walter Scheidel's book, uh, The Great Leveler? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Nick, actually, he was on our very first uh, episode, if I remember correctly. That's nice. right. That's right. That's right. We That's talk, very cool. And, and he points out that um, every period of economic leveling, closing that inequality gap, has taken place due to... Um, essentially one of the four horsemen of the of the apocalypse, uh, pandemics being one of them. And, you know, it, it's interesting. I've been looking at the reaction of some business people and politicians, you know, the Republican states that are revoking the, the generous unemployment benefits, uh, people complaining that people are unwilling to go back to work or that they're demanding wages that are too high. It reminded me of... Um, Historically, after the Black Death, the uh, English Parliament, I think what they they I think it was called the Statute of Labors, where they actually passed a law mandating that people accept the wages at the rates that existed prior to the uh, Black Death. Right, a maximum wage. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right, and uh, how'd that work out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, of course, there was also a massive rebellion in I think thirteen. 81, so a few years after the Black Death had ended. So um, yeah, you're completely right. I mean, this was this was the, basically the result of the fact that there were fewer workers around uh, after the Black Death. And so if someone was treating you badly, 
it was a bit easier to get up and say, actually, I'm going to go and work for someone else. So what you what you see after the Black Death uh, in in England, particularly, but not just there, is that people at the very like bottom of of English uh, society have a bit more a bit more power, and this kind of culminates in this in this sort of massive uh, rebellion in, in a few years later. But if you look generally across pandemics and, and wars, what you find is that wages, average wages, they they go up, uh, they go up by you know quite noticeably actually. I think that speaks to something that you're, that I think potentially why you refer to this Walter uh, Shiloh thing, because I think there is a, a sense after the pandemic ends that uh, certain people, and it really is basically always the people who have the least money and the least political power have suffered the most during that period. Right. And so there's a political will to, to sort of try and sort it out. I mean, this another great example of this is after the uh, there's a big cholera outbreak in the early uh, 1830s in, in 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 Paris, and this is the story of or part of the story of Les Misérables, which of course everyone has either read or seen or knows something about. Which was that there was this huge outbreak in Paris, and and the people that died in huge numbers were all the poor, and the rich had fled to their country homes, just like people fled New York and San Francisco a year ago. And as a result, when the pandemic passed, there was a sense of people. You know, people kind of said, "Okay, this, that that was really unfair. We need to try and rectify these inequalities." Right. So that brings us to the potential downside of the pandemic. On on the upside, we could see a post-pandemic world with a nice little economic boomlet, more entrepreneurship, uh, higher wages, particularly at the low end of the wage scale. On the downside, history <laughs> tells us we could see civil war. Yeah, I mean, I guess that. I mean, Other than that, it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, look, obviously, not all, not all protest is is bad, right? So, like, it's right. not necessarily a downside. If it depends on your where you are in the, in, you know, where your what your political leanings are, I guess, and where you are in that in that fight. But yeah, you're completely right that this is something that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has done. A lot, quite a lot of work on actually, which basically looks at, at very more, much more recent pandemics, and so like uh, Zika virus in Brazil and Ebola, which was in 2013-14, and uh, SARS and things like that. And they have these measures of like political instability and civil unrest. So things like how many protests there are per year in a given country, and they find that these pandemic events tend to accelerate or to increase those kind of events taking place. And those and the increase is particularly large in um, societies that are more unequal. So a society that goes into a pandemic that's kind of fairly equitable tends not to have a big explosion of civil unrest afterwards, but a society that goes into it very unequal tends to have a big one. And the interest, one of the interesting findings in one of the IMF papers is that civil unrest tends to peak about two years after the pandemic ends. Now, quite what ends mean is a bit subjective, obviously. But I mean, in the US, obviously, you've had your lowest cases now for a very long time on a on a on a uh, on a Monday or Tuesday. Um, so you, maybe it's near to ending. So I suppose in June 2023, we might see some sort of crazy thing happening. Who knows? Right. So 2020, we had uh, those those huge Black Lives Matters protests around the country with. Uh, 
the kind of uh, the police riots in response. That's how I'll characterize it. We saw the the January 6th insurrection, an attempt to actually overthrow the government of the United States. But you're telling me the worst uh, is uh, two years out. <laughs> well, I guess I am. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, there'll be sociologists and economists who talk about this for ages, but I personally would be definitely convinced by the idea that perhaps the, the Black Lives Matter protests and the, the storming of the Capitol kind of might not ever have happened it had not been a pandemic because so many things were just completely in flux. And there was a, there was a, you know, you have to remember that back in June 2020, when, when all of the protests started, the US unemployment rate was like 20%, 15, 20%. I mean, that's just, that's just insanely high. And the sense of injustice and uh, inequality at that point was, was really kind of profound. So, so hopefully, hopefully there's not going to be more to come, but the historical record would suggest that that is quite important. Okay. I think that one of the important uh, sort of psychological points that you made in this piece you wrote is that after a bunch of pandemic death, other risks seem moderate by comparison, right? Yeah. So, you're, yeah. you know, if you're in a bad circumstance, you may feel more compelled, more comfortable in pressing for new arrangements. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the classic example of that is is again, the, I mean, the Black Death is the easy example, I suppose, because it's it was so big that it all the effects it had were so large that it was easy to spot them. But yeah, as you say, so some some historians have drawn this interesting link between um, the end of the Black Death and the start of European imperialism and colonial you know colonialism because and they do they do kind of coincide quite well actually. There was obviously other stuff going on as well, but and I think that was that was down to this idea that. You know, traveling on a ship in in 1340 was quite a risky activity because you know the chance of dying from disease was really high, or the chance of chance of sinking was really high. But then, when a plague comes along and all your friends are dying anyway, then you think, "Oh, I fancy my chances actually, because this could make me a lot of money. And if I stay at home, I'll probably just die anyway. So why not why not go sailing around the world?" So yeah, you're completely right. There, there's also economic historians who suggest that the Black Death played a big role in triggering uh, the the changes that led to the rise of market capitalism. Absolutely. Yeah. In lots of ways. So we've talked about the the power of work labor workers being somewhat higher than it than it was. So that's really important. I think the other thing which is really essential to the rise of capitalism in Europe is is the printing press because it enables information to be disseminated far more quickly and for cohesive markets to form uh, in Europe. And that is, again, that is also something which uh, a lot of historians have argued was, was accelerated by the Black Death, because if you wanted to, to reproduce something before the Black Death, you could just get a bunch of people to, to sit there and to, to, to copy it out, monks or whatever, whatever they did back then. But then, of course, all the monks were dead um, <laughs> by 1360. So you didn't have any monks left to copy the stuff out. So there was much more of a of a sort of need to find other ways of, of copying things out. And so, you know, you have the Gutenberg, uh, not the Gutenberg, but the Gutenberg printing press that emerges not really that long after the end of the Black Death. So there could be some parallels there too, I think, for today. So, so automation to the rescue. All right, all right let, 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 so that, that brings me back to the current economic recovery. Are we seeing a surge in labor-saving technologies? as a result of this pandemic, uh, either 
due to uh, the unwillingness of people to take these low wage jobs or just simply, man, machines don't get sick? So this is a bit of a this is a bit of a bugbear of mine uh, generally with with uh, both economists and journalists who write about economics because they love to argue that machines are taking over and there's so many you've probably read about a million yourself where they say yeah. by 2027 five in ten jobs will be automated blah 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 and the, this is going to overdrive during the pandemic for for the reasons you described and perhaps for good reason because there is historical evidence of this the evidence and, and so to work out whether this is actually happening or not is something that very few people for reasons i don't really understand have bothered to look at they just tell you that it's happening but actually yeah. the evidence that it is happening at least at the moment is quite limited so even in a place like australia where you would think that they would be kind of ahead of everyone else because they've kind of at least for now kind of beaten covid they're in a post-covid future there's no evidence really that the kind of jobs that you would expect to go if the robots took over have gone. So like, for instance, there's like as many people doing manual data entry as there were before, which is exactly the kind of job that you'd expect a robot to take over. Right. It's the same in the US. So I, to answer your question, not yet, but that might change. Yeah. I mean, th th these arguments just never make any sense to me at all. I mean, we have gone through both the industrial revolution and the computer revolution over the last hundred odd years yeah. and gone from a planet that had a billion people on it to one that has almost 8 billion people on it. And almost yeah. everybody is still employed, <laughs> right? It was better than that. I mean, before the, yeah, totally, yeah, I mean, like, before the pandemic, there were more people than ever in work. Yeah. And, you know, this idea that the robots are coming to take our jobs. I mean, if uh, weaving machine is not a robot that can take a lot of jobs. I don't know what is, <laughs> you know, if a, if a backhoe who, that can dig holes and ditches is not a robot taking a lot of jobs. I don't know what is, but we, yeah. we continue to have lots of people, virtually everyone busy doing something, despite the fact that we have all this automation. Um, you know, I just think this doom saying is just ridiculous. I mean, there, of course, there can <laughs> yeah. be there can be disruptions in particular fields and industries or in particular tasks. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I am 100% with you. And, I, you know, Callum, I think the reason that this gets so much play in the press is that the anecdotes are easy to find. Sure. Right? Like, you can always find, it, just like you can always find a business that will claim that they closed because we raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour, right? You can always find some business to say that, well, we bought these machines because, you know, workers were hard to find. But because they wanted yes, a living wage. Yeah. <laughs> Robots don't demand yeah. a living wage. Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. So, so, okay. So we're not seeing uh, the robots coming to take all of our jobs. What are we seeing in the recovery right now? So there's, there's, there's some good stuff going on, which is that, um, maybe I'll start with the bad stuff first, actually. So, the, so, the, so the, all the weird stuff, is that you still have a lot of people, let's talk about the US, you still have about 8 million people uh, who weren't in work before the pandemic, who are not in work now. Weird thing is that at the same time as that, you have many companies, more companies than ever before, saying that they can't fill vacancies. And actually, if you look at the number of vacancies in the US economy, there have never been more vacancies, unfilled vacancies now, uh, than, than now, sorry. So you've got this weird thing, loads of people out of work, but companies complaining they can't fill jobs. Uh, so that's uh, that has a bunch of explanations, I think, but no one really quite knows what's going on. 
Uh, so that's weird. You also have this other weird thing about um, this shortage of uh, goods. So companies are also complaining that getting inventory into into their shops or whatever is really hard. And if you look at uh, inventory levels in US retailers, they've never been so low. So they, if you actually, you know, the amount of stuff they're holding in the back of the shop to sell or on the on the on the on the shelves has never been so low. Uh, which is completely nuts. And that, again, has a bunch of explanations, which is, I think it's a bit easier to understand what's going on there. And then on the good stuff, you, so what you had before the pandemic was about, well, quite a few years actually, of big companies cutting back on on investing, investing in new factories, investing in new business techniques, investing in R&D and all this sort of stuff. And instead, they are much more likely to give their money to shareholders in the form of buybacks or dividends or whatever. And what you've, what you've seen recently is that that appears to be changing. And actually, companies are now embarking on this kind of once-in-a-generation investment boom, which is basically great. Again, not quite sure why it's happening, but they're basically investing in loads of things. So you know, global sales of computers are going completely nuts. People are buying loads of machines and investing in factories and all that sort of stuff. And I think this is great because basically the reason why we're so much richer today than we were 100 years ago is because businesses invested in new technologies. And so that's a weird thing that I don't think anyone really saw coming with the pandemic but uh, or with the end of the pandemic, but that's also happening. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on uh, at the moment, basically. You know, in my, my opinion... Uh, something that will accelerate that investment boom will be significantly higher corporate taxes and higher taxes on dividends and so on and so forth is, you know, because the, the, the low tax regime sort of neoliberal view was that the lower taxes are, the more investment will be made. Yeah. And that turns out to be exactly the opposite of true. Uh, the lower taxes are, the easier it is for businesses business owners to take money out of the businesses. Um, the higher the taxes are, the more investment looks like a better alternative in the near term rather than paying the high tax rates. And so that 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 may be very helpful too. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think this is the result of a change in in attitudes, a change in thinking, or just like CEOs finally had the opportunity to do maybe what they wanted to. I'm thinking a case of, you know, big companies like Ford that eliminated their dividend at the peak of the crisis for obvious reasons. They weren't, you know, the economy had cratered. And rather than reinstating their dividend, they've recently announced that they're going to invest like $40 billion in electrifying their lineup. Um, That seems like a net plus in many ways. Uh, I'm wondering whether could Ford have made that decision without the pandemic or would they just been slammed by Wall Street for for eliminating a dividend? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I I think so. I I mean, hard to be sure, obviously, but I do think that the amazing innovations of the past year, uh, obviously in vaccines, but there's so many other things as well that we just take for granted now, but we didn't really do a year ago. So many amazing innovations have taken place. Maybe has sort of reminded us that like, when we, uh, you know, put our minds to something and try and get something really cool done, we can actually do it. And isn't that amazing? And so like investing in stuff actually does pay off. 
And maybe we'd forgotten that somehow, you know, in the years leading up to the pandemic. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that, on that sort of cultural explanation. So uh, we often ask this question, we call it the benevolent dictator question. If it was up to you, if you were in charge of the West, uh, what would you be doing uh, to help the West recover from this pandemic and, uh, you know, embrace the good stuff and avoid the bad stuff? Well, I, I mean, I, I would have, I would have said this before the pandemic, to be honest, but I, I, one of, and I'm, I'm hopefully going to write a book about this question. And one of the things that I think is underappreciated still is the question of the damage to every aspect of life that uh, the, the current housing market, not just in the US, but in other countries as well, does. I, I really do believe that of all the policies that any government could implement that was seeking to uh, effect progressive change, like sorting out the housing market, building more houses, improving tenants' rights, improving the quality of public housing is just the number one thing by such a long way. But weirdly, it's not talked about that much. Uh, and so that needs to change. And, and we have one final question before we let you go which is, why do you do this work? Uh, I mean, I, 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 I mean I, uh, it's probably just because it's, 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 uh, it's fun, you know? It's intellectually very satisfying. And um, I think the media has, a, has a, a really important role to play. And I, and I, I'm often, I often feel the media gets a, a very bad rep. And uh, m- most of the time that's completely unjustified and some of the time it is justified. And I think that um, I have a, People have a, someone has to write pieces that are that are true and tell it as it is, and that's not a very good answer, but that's that's probably as good as I can give. Well, Callum, thank you so much for being with us. This is a great, interesting conversation, and uh, we look forward look forward to chatting with you more. Thank you so much for inviting. Yeah. So, Goldie, do you think will the COVID pandemic make people less? or more averse to inequality, less willing to put up with bad governance? Uh, you know what? I I think it's one or the other. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we're seeing it already that I think a lot of a lot of workers have uh reevaluated what they're willing to accept yeah. as a fair wage. I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing this upward pressure on wages. I think a lot of economists and policymakers are coming to terms with the very apparent fact that our labor market is dysfunctional. You know, Callum raised that weird situation where you have uh, 8 million people out of work uh, at the same time that you have employers saying that they have all these jobs they can't fill. And, you know, orthodox economics tells us that's impossible. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That the labor market... Well, uh, in that situation, you know, something's got to give. And I, again, I think was it Hi- Heidi Scherholtz on a on a yeah. recent episode who said that whenever they say that they can't fill a job, an employer says we can't fill a job, what they mean is we can't fill a job at this particular wage, at yes. the wage we yes. we want to pay. Yeah, and and you know, to be clear, I think that it turns out that it is difficult, costly, and time-consuming to hire people. It just is, under the best of circumstances. And when American companies laid off or fired all those millions and millions of workers in the the worst parts of the pandemic, they should have understood 
that getting those workers back was going to take a lot longer than sending out the email saying, you're out of here, <laughs> right? right? Like it takes one minute to fire somebody and sometimes six months to get somebody to come back to work. Um, there's just a lot of friction in the labor market. You know, it's fine and good to say there are all these jobs available, but then the right workers have to find the right jobs in the right places and it all has to settle out and it just will take time. And so a lot of the complaining is simply uh, a reflection of the time lag and the, and you know, the natural inclination of employers to want to get to bring people back at some exploitive wage and it may not be possible anymore. It, it does suggest perhaps that, you know, we do unemployment wrong, that um, yeah. we should have put more money into preventing people from being laid off yeah. uh, than to pay them once they're laid off because of those costs of bringing people back onto payroll. Everybody might have been better off from that. We also, had we done that, uh, we might not have some of the supply crunch that we have right now, the shortages. Obviously. In yeah. certain in certain goods, so I think on the positive side, I and and you're seeing this from the Biden administration as well. There's more emphasis on raising wages, on protecting the rights of workers and the interests of workers. Something we haven't seen a lot of the past forty years. That's right. Um, on the other hand, I still worry about the future politically. I I see the very real possibility of political unrest, political violence, that January 6th insurrection being just a practice for the uh, bigger insurrection from the right that comes as uh, the Trumpist Republican Party realizes that the only way they can hold power in a democracy is to destroy it. So, you know, I think if if we don't improve a lot of lives very quickly, yeah, um, there will be trouble. We, there will be a lot of trouble and we risk undermining the whole thing. I agree. Let's hope we're wrong. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.